when you're young, especially if you're not from a wealthy family, the only thing that you've got is yourself to add value to. And so that's your only asset. So add as much value to yourself as you can through education and through, um, you know, career progression and like and trying new things and getting experience and trying to build yourself into something that can, you know, um, get ahead. G'day and welcome to episode 57 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and I'd just like to start off by saying a big thank you to each and every one of you that are listening in. I feel incredibly grateful that I get to discover and get a front row seat to some incredible stories from absolutely extraordinary people. If you're enjoying what we're doing, please rate and review us. We'd love any feedback you've got, as well as any topics or suggestions or potential guests you'd like to see. This episode is sponsored by LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more, you can head to www.lawd.com.au. Today, I'm very excited to be welcoming Jill Kelly to the podcast. For more than a decade, Jill has been a district vet with the local land services in Western New South Wales where her work supports farmers with ruminant nutrition, animal welfare and sustainability on farm. As you'll quickly work out, her story is anything but linear. This girl from Western New South Wales saw herself going to the big smoke and then taking herself across the world. But when she's not up to her elbow dissecting a sheep these days, Jill's creative side flares to life. She's a passionate painter, where you can check out her work under the alias of Miss Vet. I love the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. During the recent drought, there were a few shining beacons, one being the well-known Buy From The Bush campaign. For Jill, it turned her hobby into something far more. But for Jill, who was on the front line of supporting farmers, it was a little initiative that she started called the Drought Smoker. As she describes, it was an idea that was born out of necessity. Every Tuesday, she'd bake a cake and spend the morning chatting about a topic that would help the farmers in her community with their livestock in the midst of the drought. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, Jill. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Ollie. You were just saying before that it's been a bit of a busy week. Can you just run us through what does a week in your life look like? Yeah, at the moment. Yeah, it has been a busy week. Plenty of time on farm this week helping producers. Um, I think that in some ways you can experience more issues when it rains and when it's dry. Um, yeah, plenty of issues associated with green feed this week and especially putting stock on crop. So, yeah, that brings with it its host of challenges. And um, it's nice, though, to do my job at the moment because people are certainly happier than, than when we were in drought. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a different reception when you turn up on farm. They're, they're happy. Yeah, I bet. I was going to say, it seems to be kind of a common theme at the moment that yeah finally the rain has come and prices are looking pretty good across everything there is a real sense of optimism isn't it and has that flown back into the community of, of where you live in Canamble? yeah absolutely i think the color green has a really potent motivating you know it's really uplifting and it must have um, some impact on you know people's emotions so just the fact that it's green, the tanks are full, the dams are full, and there's a little bit less to worry about, um, yeah, has certainly flowed on through the community. And 
you know, it's influenced my job too. I took three months long service leave just lately. And um, I felt that I could do that because my producers were in a spot where they, you know, could get along without me. Like it wasn't, I couldn't have left them in the drought. Things were too, things were too tough. Yeah. Did it, did you find um, an enormous weight on your shoulders during the drought where it was? You, you were kind of that last stop shop for answers when it came to, to the animals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Canamble's got a variable climate, so we're used to feeding. We're set up to feed. We grow a lot of cereal grains and we're used to doing it. But it went on for so long and um, people had exhausted their on-farm on grain supplies and so were looking to, like, they were having to buy things that they'd never fed before and people were really panicking. Um, and a lot of them, um, they, they were just buying. They, they hadn't really done the sums behind it. And I think they were really frightened by the sums behind it and what it was costing. So, um, and not to mention just the mental drain of every day having to get up and feed stock. Um, yeah, so they, they were certainly ringing a lot and I was having to go out on farm a lot. Um, I mean, as a district vet, my predominant job is disease surveillance. You know, we're out there looking at stock, especially where I'm located. Um, just because we're in the anthrax belt, it's just important to go and recognise and investigate dead stock. But in these cases, it was all nutritional and people really needed help. So, And I want to jump back. So the town of Canamble in Western New South Wales, it's always you, you grew up around that area. Um, you've certainly had a roundabout way of getting back there. So when you, when you left uh, Canamble to head to Sydney Uni initially to go and study, did you ever think you were going to come back here? No, I didn't actually. Um, yeah, it was never really the plan to come home and it was certainly never the plan to be a government vet. Um, growing up, I wasn't one of those kids that always wanted to be a vet. I, um, first of all, wanted to be a hairdresser. Okay. And then I wanted to be a rural journalist. Um, but in about year nine or 10, I switched into ag in high school and I just really loved it. And um, yeah, thought didn't know what I was going to do. Thought I, I would just go and work on a place somewhere, which my parents were dead against. Um, and yeah, didn't quite get the marks to get into vet science. So I actually enrolled in accounting because I thought that was another you know, reasonably paid job that I could live in a rural area and have a decent income. Um, but that would have been an epic fail, both on my part and the poor, um, the poor people who needed their tax done, because I'm really not very good with numbers and sitting inside and concentrating. <laughs> so, um, yeah, luckily I've talked my way into vet science and the rest is history. <laughs> I'd love to know a bit more on that. The Yeah, that path into vet. And it was interesting because I was going to say, I felt like every country kid, seems to have a dream of being a vet at some stage, but obviously not for you. So, so the path into vet was, yeah, a bit of a windy road. Talk us through, through how you actually ended up getting in and to Sydney Uni as well, which is one of the most, I suppose, prestigious vet colleges in, in Australia. Yeah, well, I graduated high school in 99. So back then when I was looking to get into vet, Wagga, Townsville and Roseworthy didn't exist. So it was really just the major capital cities that offered vet science in Australia. So, yeah, very um, it was very competitive to get in. Um, I think my UAI was, from memory, 97.2 and you needed 98.45 to get in. So I was like one point something. See, that's how good I am at maths. One point something <laughs> below the cutoff. Um, and um, uh, 
so I, I'd had a bit of a rough year 12. My mum had breast cancer and, um, and a, a, a fellow, like a friend of ours in year 12 had killed himself. And it was, it was a pretty traumatic year. And um, like, yeah, there sort of wasn't a great deal of careers advice or support or special consideration or anything like that. So we weren't sort of, um, yeah, there was no special consideration. So I went to, I somehow wrangled myself an appointment with the sub-dean of academic admissions at Sydney Uni to beg my way in. And so I went down to Sydney and I, I met with um, with this fellow in, um, in you know, the, the old sandstone buildings of Sydney Uni at the vet school and, and stated my case. And I said, look, I go to Pony Club and I've, you know, always had something to do with agriculture and the land. And, you know, I really want to go back to the bush. And, you know, this is what's happened in year 12. And he, he, he showed me the list and he said to me, look, I know you want to get in and you're only 1.2 marks below but there's 30 kids above you who all have got, there's 30 kids above you on the list that have got better marks that all want to get in too. So my suggestion to you is go home and find another career. And I was like, okay, righto. So I went home and I enrolled in accounting at CSU in Bathurst and I found a place to live and I got a scholarship and I was all ready to go to CSU in Bathurst to do accounting. And then um, for some reason they reconsidered and he rang just, to, just the week before I was meant to start at CSU at Bathurst and said, would you like a place? And I said, absolutely. Like, that's amazing. Yes, count me in. Um, and then I sort of thought, God, where am I going to live? I've got so much to organise and I can't actually really afford to live in Sydney. So I said to him, look, would you mind if I deferred? And he's like, well, no, that would suit us really well too. You can be in next year's intake. So I deferred for a year and um, I was a checkout chicken and barmaid in Canamble. Yeah, lovely. Which taught me a lot about talking to people and it also taught me I didn't want to stay as a checkout chicken and barmaid. Um, so I went to uni. So tell me a little bit more. So was high school in Canamble or whereabouts did you go to high school? Yeah, I went to high school in Canamble until year nine and then... Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I went to All Saints in Bathurst after that, so for four years. Yeah, right. Tell me a little bit more about Canamble because I feel like, you, yeah, although you said kind of initially the plan was never to come back, you've got this lure which keeps just dragging you back. You, you had a year off and, and you're straight back into Canamble. And does it have a nickname? No, I just Canamble. But you've okay. got to get the accent right. It's spelt Coonamble, but no one actually pronounces it like that. So you've just <laughs> got to get the accent right. Um, oh, Canamble, I think it's got a real personality. Everybody who's ever lived here, you know, has a special affinity, like affinity for the place and, you know, um, it's got a rich history. You know, everyone's got a story about Canamble or someone they knew from Canamble. And um, it's, a, it's a little town. It's about 160 k's north of Dubbo. 
Um, it's on the Western Plains. So we've got the Warrumbungal Mountains to our east and out to our west, we've sort of got the Macquarie Marshes. And um, yeah, it's very flat, it's very open grazing country. Most of it, um, it's become a big cropping area and um, yeah, sheep and cattle. Um, and just like it's got the town itself's got about 2,700 people in it and it's just a pretty tight knit community. Um, there's, you know, I have a lot of community support and um, I just, I lived in Dubbo for a while. Like I've lived overseas. I've lived, you know, my first job was in Roma. I've lived in heaps of different places, but Canamble's just got that special feel. And um, I really like living in a town where you walk down the street and everyone says hello and and, um, you know, I know that I can bring someone and ask for help at any given moment and someone to come and help me. So, yeah. If I haven't seen you for a while, they're asking, is everything all right? And where have you been? Have you been away? <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's no secrets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, so have there been, has there been an influx of young people coming back or has it just been a steady trickle over the last few years? What's, yeah, the vibe of the town at the moment? It's pretty good at the moment. Um, having said that, I don't think our rugby team's going so well. That's often a that's often a clue as to how the young population of Canamble's going. Um, because I work across multiple areas, like I go out to Warren and Ningen sometimes, and and down to Galar. Like you've got to be very careful with football politics as to you know who you barrack for and what you talk about. So. Um, but Canamble itself, yeah, it's, um, it ebbs and flows. So yeah, we, you know, there's some years where there's heaps of people come in. There's some years where heaps of people go out. Um, yeah. Um, and that's seasonally dependent too. So yeah. Yeah. And that's just, it's always been like that. Now I just want to jump back. So you, you've gone, you, you got into Sydney and you've deferred, you've done the checkout chick thing and the bartending for a year. You've now gone and got into Sydney Uni. Was was the initial, I suppose, move to the big city, what you expected? Were there, yeah, some skeletons in the closet once you got there and were, were you spooked at all? I was petrified, yeah. I'd, ha- I'd never really been to Sydney. I had no idea where I was going. Um, I couldn't catch a train or a bus. Had no idea how to do anything in the city. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a completely a fish out of water. Um, I was really lucky in that I got a really massive scholarship to go to the women's college. And so um, that was great. So I got to live on campus um, and um, Quentin Bryce, who's now Dame Quentin Bryce, was the college principal at the time. And I think uh, like she's a girl from Western Queensland. So I think she looked at me and thought, oh, yeah, um, you know, she sort of took me under her wing and was really good to me. So, um, yeah, I was really lucky to have her in my corner. And um, yeah, I learned and I'm so pleased I did it because um, there's no chance of me ever going back and living in the city, I don't think. So I'm just happy to have had those four years down there where I got to, you know, yeah, do all those sorts of things and live down there. So at Sydney Uni, it's known, I suppose, for its smaller animals and uh, potentially ending up with, yeah, as a Bondi vet or something similar in, in the big city. Were, were, those, <laughs> were those lights, uh, yeah, ever appealing to you as you were going through uni or was it always yeah larger animals and getting bush well not so much then ollie but i tell you what i had some days in the drought where i was elbow deep in a sheep carcass in a dust storm and i was seriously reconsidering my choices in life (laughs) um but when 
Yeah, when I was at uni, no, I, I just, yeah, the small animals didn't interest me whatsoever. And um, it was very small animal dominated though. And even the um, the students that were in the course were all small animal focused. So we got um, we got a little bit of large animals. We, we went to Camden in fourth year for six months and lived at Camden, which was large animal based, but it was only six months out of a five year degree. So it was, it was still limited. And, um, and then the final year is all prac work. So you're out in vet clinics for the entire last year. So that was great. And I chose a lot of rural practices for that. Um, I was always going to go back to the bush in mixed practice. That was my, that was where I was going to end up. And I got the perfect first job at Roma. So um, yeah, that was great. Tell me more about what, what that perfect job looks like straight out of uni and, and the expectation, I suppose, of landing that dream job as stop number one in the career. Yeah, I was just lucky. Um, yeah, it fell into my lap. It wasn't engineered in any way. I, um, you know, saw this job. It was the perfect mix of species, so very beef cattle orientated and horse orientated. And um, I've always been interested in proper farms, like not hobby farmers, you know, so more extensive production-focused farms. So, um, yeah, Roma was great. Heaps of um, preg testing, bull testing, extensive horse work. Like sometimes we'd go sort of out west of Roma. We had a branch clinic at Mitchell and we'd, um, you know, camp on farm for a few days and do a run and like do three or four days out there um, in a row. So that was really great and taught me a lot about independence and um, making do, um, thinking on your feet, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and I just worked with a great crew. I had a really good boss and I'm still really close friends with um, some of the people that I worked with there. And um, yeah, they taught me, they taught me heaps. So it was a, it was a great place to work for a couple of years. And so what was the trigger that, yeah, led you on to the next escapade? Well, I, I could have easily stayed at Roma because I really did love it. Um, but yeah, sort of, it was a whole cascade of events. So I suppose um, equine influenza broke out. Uh, my boss sort of got wrapped up with that and was away, that, which threw me even more in the deep end, which was good for my career progression and for my learning. It was stressful at the time. And also then he sold the clinic to one of my really close friends who was a vet that I was working with there at the time. And, um, yeah, so I just sort of thought at that point that it was time to leave. And I so I went overseas and I worked in England and um, travelled Europe and saw the world, which was, yeah, amazing. It's so good. You know, what you can do with a vet degree is really awesome. Yeah, I bet. And the UK is an interesting place, isn't it? Because you, you get over there compared to the wide open spaces of, yeah, kind of central Queensland where you were and you've got tiny little farms. It's never not green. Um, yeah, what were yeah. some of the learnings there? How, how are things different? Uh, well, yeah, even the jobs that say that they're mixed practice are, are more, um, yeah, small animal or at least individual animal focused. Um, the main job that I went over there for was awesome. So it was 95% small animal, 5% horses um, in a little village called Yate near Bristol. And the fellow that owned it was sole practice. So it was a one man show and his hobby was drinking wine. So he had a wine cellar in France that was worth £100,000 and he used to go and like to drink wine in France for the summer. So he wanted me to swap with him. So we'd do two weeks on, two weeks off. And he'd like, he'd go and drink wine. And then in my two weeks off, I'd um, go and, I don't know, go to Europe or, you know, go traveling, whatever. It was perfect. And um, when I met him, I said to him, 
Why on earth would you entrust your practice to a girl from the bush who's been out of uni for two years in Australia that you've never met, you know? And he said, oh, you're a bush vet from Australia. You'll handle anything. And um, it was true. Like we, you know, we handled stuff. And the difference between vet science here and vet science there is everything's insured over there. So all the pets are insured, even the rabbits and the guinea pigs, which gives you the ability to spend lots of money veterinary wise on them and not worry about the bill. And also we were, um, we were eight miles from Bristol University Vet Hospital. So if you weren't sure or you didn't have the equipment, you just referred it. And I remember once this border collie bitch came in and needed a cesarean and I said, right, I will do a cesarean. And the nurses were having absolute kittens about it because we usually refer cesareans. And I was going, no, it'll be right. We'll do it. <laughs> and so, yeah, we did a cesarean and got these puppies out and, oh, they were just, they thought it was wonderful. <laughs> did, you, did you find yourself changing anything there from the point of view when, when that other vet came back that it was that they started to do a few more things in-house or was he pretty happy to... Yeah, take the easier route and just send them. No, he was happy to take the easier route. And (laughs) and, um, yeah, yeah, there was a fair language barrier too. I've got an Australian accent and um, they couldn't understand me and I couldn't understand them. It was really funny. Um, Especially then then I actually went and worked in Yorkshire for a while, which was a lot more mixed practice. But yeah, the farmers couldn't understand me and I couldn't understand them. So it it was really funny. And so was that a fair indicator after a while that you thought, yep, I've seen enough of Europe, I've done enough holidaying, it's, it's been a pretty good yeah, week on, week off and I'm out? <laughs> well, I just missed Australia. I missed Australia, the, the smell of the air and um, I don't know, the, the atmosphere is different, like the Australian accents on TV, the brands in the supermarket. I missed everything about Australia. So I was pretty keen. Like I was pleased I did it. It was wonderful, but I was, I was ready to come home. So yeah. Now, I want to, um, you mentioned just before around in, in the depths of the drought, you you were honestly reconsidering your career while you're up to your elbow in a sheep carcass. Was, is that a throwaway line or is that, um, was that, yeah, the honest truth? Um, uh, it's a bit of a throwaway line. Like I see, there were some sad days, um, not just on my part, but, my farmers were, you know, deeply, deeply upset. You know, there were some really um, confronting days on farm with really upset farmers and um, that was hard to take, you know, and the, the pressure was relentless. The phone would not stop ringing and everybody who was ringing was in trouble. So it was really tough, you know, and I'm bloody pleased it broke when it did, the drought. Um, yeah, it was tough, but... I couldn't, you know, I feel too much responsibility to leave. This is, these are my people, you know, and um, and I think even if you left the job, like you still live here, you know, I still, you know, was living, you know, in a community that's, everyone's drought depressed. It's not just the farmers. So it's it's hard to escape, you know, it's, it just permeates mm. everything. Yeah. So no, I never really, uh, but I did, I did, you know, think I, I did think to myself, you know, I could have been Bondi vet. I could have been a canary vet at Byron Bay. You know, I could, <laughs> like, there's, there's choices in life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you reckon you'd be doing if you weren't a vet? I don't know. I really did question what I was doing. So when I, I left um, the UK and came home and I did a lot of locum jobs and and then I took a permanent job in in um, Dubbo because I bought a house there and I needed to pay for the house so 
but I remember I'd been out of uni about six years and I, I distinctly remember like Dubbo was a really busy area and I was on call a lot and I hated the after hours. Um, and I distinctly remember it being New Year's Eve and I was stomach tubing a horse for colic. And I remember the fireworks going off over Dubbo as I was stomach tubing this colicky horse. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? I'm in my late twenties. Um, all I do is work. I'm on call all the time, you know, and, and, and it was a constant frustration because I wanted to spend more time on farm with people, but there was the constant mixed practice pressure of, we got clients waiting back at the clinic to have their dog vaccinated. You know, there's this, you know, constant time pressure and, and also people pay, are paying you. So, um, you know, don't dilly dally. So, um, yeah, so I just, at that point, I actually thought about going back to uni and doing a dip ed and becoming an ag teacher in high school. Yeah, cool. Um, and that's when I applied for this job, which I, yeah, I didn't think being a government vet was going to be for me, but it, yeah, it's been great. So I'm 10 years in the job now and it's wonderful. Found your calling. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd love to know. So you, you mentioned, yeah, kind of the pressure of the private practice and then, and then the, yeah, mounting pressure of the drought and, being that that go-to person for so many people what what's been your outlet for you Jill um well in the drought I actually did go and get professional help and talk to someone I think that's really important um but the other thing is like I, I paint so that's really wonderful and that's a really good way people talk about meditation and mindfulness I'm not really into that but um painting is good and I've got horses as well. So I really enjoy um, just spending time with my horses. Yeah, cool. I, I find it interesting. So you're obviously incredibly academic, not quite enough. Well, to get into, that. Not quite <laughs> enough to get into vet with the, the one point. But no, so I think people like you either come across as either an academic or a creative person, but you kind of, you've got two very different worlds, which you fall into. You've got kind of the rigors of, of vet and the demands of that. And then this creativity in the painting which category would you say you lean more towards oh well I didn't know I could paint until only about five years ago that was just something that happened and I've never had a lesson so I still don't know that I I don't know it just sort of happens (laughs) um it's something that I want to do more of but um I look I took um I took three months long service leave and I painted for three months straight and um I like variety I've decided so I like a bit of it and I've got a, like a small amount of land. So I like doing horses and cattle at home here and, um, and I like painting. So I think, um, yeah, short attention span. I need variety in my life. So too much of anything's a bad thing, I think. Would you ever see yourself moving down the painting path full time or is it more of a, yeah, it's a hobby? Because it, it, it is a business on the side, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, thanks to Buy From The Bush, it's become, you know, a bit of a side hustle that's become quite significant. Yeah, so that's been great. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I definitely could go more down the painting route, if, you know, but like I said, I think variety is the spice of life and I, I just don't want to get out of bed every morning and feel like I have to paint because I think then it would ruin it for me. At the moment, it's so much fun and it really is an escape and I don't want that to ever change. Yeah, for sure. Buy from the Bush was mm. one of those initiatives. Did you, did you see many people in your town or, or your clients jumping on board and, and being part of it? Yeah, absolutely. So the drought went for three years, you know. There were a few little blips of happiness. One was the Canamble Rain Dance, which really perked our community up. And then the second one was Buy From The Bush, 
So, um, yeah, buy from the bush. There was a few local businesses and and um, and sort of local creatives here involved. But I think people even that weren't involved were excited to see um, the bush profile on the TV and people talking about it. And, um, you know, I know our post office here was crazy busy, um, you know, with businesses posting things. And, um, you know, that was a real buzz. That made, you know, a lot, it made a lot of financial difference, but it also made a lot of moral, like moral uplifting difference to our town. Yeah, it was, uh, it's an incredible initiative and one that kind of keeps running. Yeah, so it really has kept going. It's just so wonderful. Yeah, no, Grace and her team are doing an amazing job. Yeah, they are. Yeah, just they turn something into, or so turn nothing into something just overnight. But it, it wasn't the only initiative. And, and I suppose you, you're responsible for your own initiative during those years, the, the Drought Smoko. Um, tell us a bit more about what the Drought Smoko is and kind of what were the, the drivers behind it. Yeah, the Drought Smokos ended up with a bit of a cult following. Um, But it basically was born out of necessity and me trying to um, manage my time. So, um, yeah, when the drought, like when people started to run out of barley, which is what they're used to feeding, they were looking to go and buy cottonseed. People were buying um, palm kernel expeller and soya bean meal and almond hulls and all these random, you know, feed stuffs that they'd never had anything to do with. And my phone was just ringing off the hook. Like I could not keep up with the phone calls. And a lot of the people were asking exactly the same question. How do I feed cottonseed? I'd get that 20 times through the day and I'd have the same conversation 20 times. And because I couldn't keep up with the phone calls as well as, um, you know, be out in the paddock and, and all that sort of stuff, I said to them, look, I know I'm hard to get on the phone. Um, how about every Tuesday I'll cook a cake, come into the office, I'll reliably be in town at the office for two hours on a Tuesday morning, come for Smoko and we'll talk about well, whatever the topic of the week is. This week it'll be feeding cottonseed. And so, yeah, people just came and loved it. And so then people started to ring up and say, oh, hey, can you do one at the you know, um, the 2828 store in Galar. Can you do one at the Quambone store? Can you do one at such and such as Woolshed? We'll host one on our back lawn, you know, like, so we we just, I just started doing them and it was just me and a whiteboard and um, we just talk about how to feed. Like it was really basic 101 ruminant nutrition. I think we, like I ran 70 of them or something and then we made it into a YouTube video so um, that people could watch it because I was starting to get pretty tired um, of cooking and I'd exhausted my recipe, my recipe book. Um, I don't have many in my repertoire. So, um, yeah, um, we made it into a YouTube video and then, um, but we kept them going just every Tuesday in the office and it became a bit more laid back and it changed from, um, me teaching people how to feed to just, uh, like a get together. So I, I would have, um, some farmers who would come religiously every week, I'd have some that would just float in every now and then when they needed an answer to something. Um, yeah, I'd have some who just wanted to come because they felt they needed to chat with someone that week. So it just varied wildly as to who came and how many came, but someone always came. Like, it, you know, there were always people there every Tuesday. And um, I'd send them an email as well. So, I've, yeah, I'd send an email the week before and tell them what I'd cooked last week and um and what I'm going to cook the following week to try to drag them in with a bit of um, cookery. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, we, we stopped them when the drought broke and also then COVID came, so we couldn't gather in groups. But um, I still get people now ask me, when are the drought smokers coming back? When are we doing that again? So yeah, people love them. Amazing. That was, I was going to ask that question. Are they continuing? Was there either, I suppose, a moment which stands out or was there a theme which kind of came out of it all that you just think back to and it just makes you smile that out of kind of nothing, you turned it into something really important and kind of meaningful in people's week? Uh, yeah, one uh, one week I had, um, you know, a couple come in and they're, they're a pretty quiet couple that don't reach out for help a lot and, um, you know, I think, you know, battle along at home on their own. That's how they've always done it. So, that, you know, they came, they turned up, they bought me some eggs to help with the cooking. So that was nice. And they sort of just sat there. And by this stage, um, like I wasn't teaching people how to feed. It was, I'd, I'd make the cake and boil the kettle and then the farmers would just talk to one another and they'd sort their issues out pretty much amongst themselves. So they, these, this couple sat there and, and they listened to some of the other farmers who, especially the ones that come every week, they're very open. So, you know, everyone was, oh, I'm losing a few ewes and, oh, this has gone wrong and I buggered this up and, you know, everyone's sharing. And then eventually this couple spoke up and said, yeah, our ewes aren't going well either. We're losing a few. And, um, yeah, so I think they'd sort of been a bit afraid to share that until they realised that it was a safe space and that everybody was sharing. And um, so we had a yarn about it and we did some sums on what they were feeding and we worked out that they were probably underfeeding them and that they were probably having issues with pregnancy toxemia. Yeah, so, I mean, they left town that day with a... They knew what the problem was. They had a plan. So we'd, we'd recalculated how much they were going to feed out from there on in. Um, they had a list. I'd written them a list of um, what products they needed to go and buy from the rural merchandise store and the vet clinic to get some of the use up and going. And like off they went and they were, you know, you could tell when they walked out that they, like they just looked, they had a spring in their step a bit more, like they they had a bit of a plan. So it's just those sort of individual personal stories, I think, that um, that are the testament to how the drought smokers went. It's incredible. And hopefully they, they don't need to come back out of necessity for quite some time, fingers crossed. Well, yeah. I mean, now they ring for advice. They plan stuff. So now they ring for advice. Now we're just going to do this. What do you think about this? And, and sort of they plan it, um, which is great, you know, rather than, um, you know, bumbling along on your own and trying your best and, and then having the disaster. There's nothing more disheartening than that. Being able to plan means that they've got options. So mm-hmm. yep. I'm going to ask you, so you mentioned we, we've kind of, we chatted about the painting um, piece but you mentioned right at the beginning how the color green kind of just has this uplifting element to it and kind of positivity have you have you found yourself painting more in green as the season turns or has it always been part of that uh yeah the the color base um yeah no the color green hasn't come into it so much but I always paint pretty things. So my stuff is always pink and like it's, you know, it's the best, like I think I've, I hand select the best bits of bush life, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, so my, my paintings often feature um, chicks in pretty dresses and cowboy boots and fellas in well-shaped hats and, you know, she's got a lipstick on and, and the, you know, the family looks perfect and the, you know, that they're 
the, that's the best bits of bush life. I don't, I don't paint true to life. I paint, um, you know, what, what the bush should like, look like. It often doesn't, but, but yeah. um, you know, the positive bits. Unreal. Now I've got a question, Jill, which I ask everyone who comes uh, on the podcast and it's, and I reckon you'll have some very good advice for, for it, but basically I say, so this afternoon you're heading into a school and you're talking to kids in year 10, which I see is kind of like a pretty formative year when it comes to life and kind of what life might look like uh, over the next few years for them. But what would be your advice to them um, around either pursuing a career in agriculture and some of the opportunities it can present? or maybe just some life advice that they can learn from you as well? Yeah, so my advice would be, yeah, definitely pursue a career in agriculture. Um, I, I had people try to dissuade me from pursuing a career in agriculture. Um, so, yeah, don't listen. There's, and there's heaps of... Um, there's heaps of um, little channels within agriculture, you know, like, I, like I've gone back to uni and um, specialised in ruminant nutrition, you know, like if I hadn't have got into vet, I would have been far better off going and doing, um, you know, ag with a ruminant nutrition focus, you know, than, than bloody accounting. So, you know, <laughs> there's, there's heaps of options within agriculture that you might not have thought about. Um, so, yeah, stick with it. But I think the biggest thing in year 10 is... Um, or, or like stick at school, basically when you're young, especially if you're not from a wealthy family, the only thing that you've got is yourself to add value to. And so that's your only asset. So add as much value to yourself as you can through education and through, um, you know, career progression and like, and trying new things and getting experience and trying to build yourself into something that can, you know, um, get ahead because otherwise you just get stuck, you know, in a low income wage and you never get ahead. So um, yeah, just try and add as much value to yourself as you can. And I think the easiest way to do that's with education um, when you're at high school and, and in those formative years after high school. Yeah. That's some um, very sound advice. That's very good advice, actually investing in yourself. I like it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and even if you do, even if you're not academic and say you leave school and you end up as, I don't know, um, if you end up in, say, working on a place, you know, then, I mean, there's career progressions up to overseas and managers, um, you know, there's a career path there. And even if you end up a shearer, like, you know, there's people that own shearing teams, like aim for that, you know, there's always something that you can do to um, just step up and better yourself. Absolutely. Well, Jill, thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit of your story. Was there anything, I suppose, any questions you either wanted to ask me or, or something that you wanted to cover? No, I love the stories that you share, Ollie. So keep it up. There's heaps of hidden treasures within ag and they've all got a good yarn to tell. So uh, look forward to more of them. Thanks a lot, Jill. Well, that's it from us for another week. I hope you guys have enjoyed coming on a front row seat into a little bit more about Jill Kelly and the journey that she's been on as a district vet, but also how her profession has taken her right across the world. Thank you very much for listening. If you don't follow us on social media, you can jump on your Instagram or Facebook. Check out Humans of Agriculture with an underscore. If you have any guests or topics you'd like us to explore, Send me a message or head to our website and send me an email. Even cooler, you can jump on anchor.fm forward slash humans of agriculture. You can send me a voice recording. 
So, if you want to appear on the podcast, send me one of those and we'll get you on next week. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Stay sane. Everything is a little bit crazy. We're thinking of everyone in Sydney and around Australia that is in lockdowns at the moment. Looking forward to seeing you guys next week.